Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. Each week, I sit down with one of my friends as we discuss what it means to love and be loved. I'm not talking about romantic love, but the kind of love that leads us to empathy, compassion, and grace. Things our world desperately needs right now. Hey everybody, uh, this is Rob Lee for Beloved Journal, and I am so excited about today's episode. Uh, today on the show we have Ali Velshi. Ali uh, is an amazing anchor and news reporter uh, and journalist. If you have ever tuned in to MSNBC on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, you have seen him on his show, Velshi, which airs from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Um, but he also serves as a fill-in primetime anchor and covers breaking news uh, for the cable network. He's also on the ground reporting, which we talk a little bit about, and he's covered uh, uh, issues such as climate change, the spread and defeat of ISIS, the refugee crisis, the Iran nuclear deal, tensions between Russia and the West, the Greek debt crisis, and the global financial crisis. He has been on the scene for a while now, um, serving at Al Jazeera America and uh, CNN, um, but most of all, I'm grateful that he is someone who has opinions about things that are important and pressing in our time. Uh, he was gracious enough to take some time to talk with us on this most busy week. Um, this was recorded right before Kamala Harris uh, announced her uh, was announced as the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden. And it, uh, it, this is our special, uh, you know, kind of election episode as we prepare and get ready uh, for the Democratic National Convention this week. And then following that will, of course, be the Republican National Convention. As someone who is a politics nerd, um, this is something that is really exciting to me to get to talk to Ali. He has incredible opinions. He has uh, amazing uh, uh, opportunities for us to engage and, and to think about ways that, that this world might be different and that we might build community together. Uh, so I hope you enjoy, and let's listen in. Ali, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. It's my pleasure to be here, sir. So I actually did something that I do when we have, you know, some quote unquote big name guests and you are a big name guest on our show. And we're so thankful you're here. Um, but, but I reached out to some of my friends who, who are really active in, in their fields and asked them about what, what you do and what they wanted to ask you, because I think it's important sure. for, for people to ask those questions to you. Uh, my friend Rua, who is a dear friend, uh, she's a, a Muslim American who is very active in uh, politics. Uh, she's an amazing person. She's working right now on the census and doing some amazing things. She was really curious about um, your activity in the George Floyd protests, uh, the protests following George Floyd's death. Um, you were injured. Uh, you, 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 you were shot by a rubber bullet. Uh, yeah. after identifying yourself as the press a second for two, twice, you know, it, it was really egregious. And so I'm curious, um, did that change anything for you? Um, that's what Rua wanted to know. Did what changed for you after that moment? Because certainly after you're affected like that, things change. Well, so I'll say this. I, I, uh, it had made me think a lot about the degree to which um, journalists were being targeted because I was only one of many, as you know. In fact, I think there were uh, more than 200 documented cases of journalists who had some interaction. Now, in, in in most cases, it was journalists who were in and amongst crowds. So the, the criticism was of how authorities were handling the protests and the crowds. 
usually it was incidental, but in some cases it was specific. After having been identified, in, in my case, uh, after having been shot the second time, I was within earshot of the police and I was able to identify his press and I had a cameraman with a big camera. Uh, and then they opened fire and it was like, wow, this time you couldn't say you didn't know who we were. Or in the case of Omar uh, Jimenez at, uh, at, at uh, CNN. Um, uh, you, you know, these kinds of things are really weird uh, when, when you know that it's media that's being targeted. And that worries me, not because I think media should be entitled to special privileges, but because we are actually there to hold people to account. And I always say there are two things to being a journalist, right? There's the bearing of witness and the holding of a, to account. But you can't hold to account if you can't bear witness. If you can't see that it's actually happening, then you can't hold somebody to account. So it doesn't really matter where you are on the political spectrum or what you think of these protests. Uh, it, the idea that the authorities would uh, deliberately target journalists should be alarming to everybody. So that was my one thought. I'll put that in, in a bucket. The other thought is that regardless of what happened to me, I saw it happening to all sorts of people. And... I really am a strong believer in the value of protest and in the fact that this country uh, enshrines it in, in, in the Constitution. And we have to really feel strongly about that, including the protests of people with whom you don't agree. So I, I, both of those things, uh, watching it in sharp relief, and in one case, feeling it in sharp relief, really made me understand that the concept of protest, the concept of bearing witness, and the concept of holding authority to account is very, very active. The minute you let it go, it can be taken away from you. So we have to pro we have to practice it. We have to defend it. We have to be out there doing it. So it almost it, it made me double down because my boss is all called within seconds of of uh, my getting hit by a rubber bullet and said, "You, you want to pull back? Do you want to go back to the hotel?" And I said, "You know what? We're in this soup now." Um, what, whether I like it or not, we, we've now, we're in it. So we're staying in it. And, and, and that has been the commitment that I've, I've wanted to make now. So, so, you know, this leads me to the other question that was asked when I polled my friends is, uh, uh, one of my relatives, uh, Dave wanted to know, you know, it seems at least from a lay person's perspective with journalism, that this president has eroded um, not only the, the people's trust in the media, but the media's trust in what's happening. Um, because it, it seems like everybody's, you know, uh, at each other's throats right now, all because someone has actively eroded that trust that has That's been right. there for so long. Is That's that what your perception is or, yeah. or what's going on with that? Yes, that is an astute perception because what has happened is when you say that the press is the enemy of the people enough times, um, it, it, some people start to believe it. So I had people tweeting me uh, that night that I got shot saying, well, why were you even out there anyway? There was a curfew. And I said, you know, they're not meant to curfew the media, right? If, if there's a curfew because they're trying to control unrest, we actually should be there all the time. The media should always be there. And authorities should always be okay with the media being there because then nobody's doing anything wrong. If we've got our lights and camera on them, sunlight being the best, in, you know, disinfectant or camera lights being the best disinfectant, uh, we should all want that. So, so I think there's that. And I think that there's something that Donald Trump has done that's been very unfair to law enforcement as well in, in um, perpetuating this myth that they are victimized. And I, I have friends in law enforcement and I'm thankful for those people who go out and risk their lives on a daily basis to keep the rest of us safe. But in, in perpetuating them as a victim of some sort of uh, organized 
uh, injustice, it frees them up to do certain things. And again, it wasn't in my case, but in the, in the case of that CNN reporter, the idea that he identified himself, he was standing in front of a camera, they had all the things that would tell you their media, and they still arrested him. Doesn't happen in America. That's not supposed to happen in America. I've completely been in places where I've covered news where that's supposed to happen. I was in Iran when the, when the Iran nuclear deal was signed, and we were stopped by police all the time and detained. But I knew that was going to happen. It's America. It's not supposed to happen here. On the flip side, Donald Trump has energized people to understand their rights, to understand their constitution, to read their constitution, to learn about protests, to learn about the history of this company, uh, this country. So there will come a day, probably not immediate, but there will come a day where I will thank him for uh, enlightening us and reminding us about what we're fighting for. I didn't think I'd hear that from you, but that's a very good point. Uh, I think that at the very least, we all are energized right now. And there's people yes. who are energized that are ready to, and, and that kind of leads me into, you know, what's going on right now. I mean, we are on the precipice of the Democratic National Convention. We are um, staring down a vice presidential pick, which may be the most uh, consequential vice, president, vice mm -hmm. presidential pick of our uh, lifetimes. I, I'm curious, you, you get to talk to these people on a regular basis. Uh, are, are, is the Democratic Party energized right now? Because uh, there's a lot of conflicting accounts as to whether, you know, well, well, gosh, we, we've got Joe Biden. You know, I, I personally, I, I really like Joe Biden. But I, sure. I also think that there are people who are like, you, they would prefer different. And that's fair. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as the party is starting to coalesce, what are you seeing? So, first of all, most people who know Joe Biden or have met him do like him. Whether that's going to energize you to, uh, to think that he's the best thing since sliced bread, you should vote for him against all odds, is a, is a slightly different question. Um, but I think there are two things that are working in Joe Biden's favor. One is Donald Trump. Uh, there are a whole lot of people who are maybe lukewarm on Joe Biden, but it, it, you know, the, the bigger issue here is about Donald Trump. Uh, the secondary issue, I had a conversation with Bernie Sanders about a week ago, who also would prefer to vote for somebody, I think, other than Joe Biden. But he was very clear on the fact that there are two fights. The first one is, is uh, the, the big fight that we've got in, in, in terms of turning this ship around. And then after the election, he says, I'm going to have another fight. I, I'm going to work to make, in his words, Joe Biden the most progressive president in the history of America. But that's his work, and that's later work. And you can't get to that later work if you don't get to the first work. So I think that's part of it. The second thing is, I think that Joe Biden has an opportunity in his vice presidential pick. First of all, he said it's going to be a woman. So that's kind of amazing. When a man who's 77 years old is running for president, um, his pick is notable because you actually have to think of that person as the president of the United States, or certainly the next president of the United States. So that's a big deal that he's picking a woman. And secondly, we, you know, at MSNBC, we put, I think it's a screen that probably has 12 women on it who are the, the 12 people who are talked about. There may be others. They're all really impressive. I mean, they really are independently impressive. I've spoken to almost all of them, if not all of them. Um, and I'd be most pleased uh, if any of them were the vice president or the president. So I think that that's actually something around which people will become energized. We had Shirley Chisholm in 1972. She ran for president. Uh, they, the press actually laughed at her at, her at the speech that she gave at the National Press Club. Uh, we had Jerry Ferraro in uh, 1987. Uh, and, and we've had Sarah Palin. And then we had nearly the first woman president in Hillary Clinton. We keep getting close. Um, but now it's time. I, I listed on my show uh, the, the number of countries that have had women 
presidents and prime ministers, it's, it's really long and it's kind of shameful that America hasn't gotten there. So if there's something to get energized about, that, that may be it. So, you know, another thing that I'm personally energized about as a pastor, as someone who is a person of faith, uh, convicted deeply by my faith, is that I, I think Donald Trump thinks he has this in the bag with people of faith. Um, and to some evangelicals, I'm sure he does, but I'm a mainline Protestant. So, you know, I am deeply compelled by Joe Biden's faith as a Catholic person who is, is he, uh, you know, it was kind of funny when they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump was saying that Joe Biden would hurt God, right? Um, I, I kind of thought, oh, gosh, I would love one of the debates to have a, have a, like a Bible trivia question. And I know who would win. It, it would uh, hands down uh, be Joe Biden because he's compelled by his faith. I'm also deeply moved by the fact that he is, um, that, that's not the defining policy move. And that's what I study is what, what policies do presidential you know, candidates or they, they yeah. enact as president um, based on their faith. And it's, it, you know, he's compelled by that, but he's not defined by that. I think that's and, a really interesting observation you make, because I think that being compelled by your faith and, and, and most of our faiths guide us to live it right? To, to conduct yourself in, in a manner that is in accordance with your faith. And if you're compelled by it and you live it, um, you're doing God's work. And you don't have to wear the badge if you don't feel like wearing the badge, or you don't have to uh, uh, propose things that prove to other people uh, your membership in the club. And, and Joe Biden, when he's asked about his faith, it's quite interesting to watch him respond. He at no point shies away from it. His anecdotes and his stories have a lot to do with his Catholic upbringing. And the uh, the things you'd think about that, the, the, almost the stereotypes, he, he enjoys them a little bit. But he doesn't, he doesn't go beyond that in trying to prove something to you. In other words, in his world, I told you, I'm brought up as a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. I, 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 these are the things that I did. He relates uh, stories about it. But he doesn't feel any need to do anything to suggest to anybody else that it's different uh, or that it's more meaningful. And I think that that's a really important part of uh, of faith in America. It's what I love about faith in America. I'm a Muslim. And if you asked me about my faith, it would be a similar response to what, what Joe Biden would do. I can tell you about the ways in which I was brought up and the experiences I had, but I feel no need to answer any test questions for anyone. And I don't think he feels any need to answer any test questions about his faith. So, you know, I think uh, Muslim Americans, you, you, you mentioned your, your Muslim faith, and I wanted to ask about that because there are so many... Um, uh, in the past 20 some years, uh, especially since 9-11, there has been significant xenophobia, um, uh, you know, some of which has come from the very highest office in the land, uh, you know, with, yeah. with, with the quote Muslim ban, you know, all this stuff. What do you see for the future of Muslim Americans um, right now in, in this country? Uh, you know, we're all saying this is a consequential election. We know this, but What's at stake for Muslim Americans right now? So this is a, a question I would have answered differently four years ago, because uh, in, in going after Muslims, what Donald Trump achieved, uh, uniquely in going after um, the Khan family, because it, it sort of brought out the fact that you're mocking a guy, a man and a woman whose son died in, in wearing the country's uniform. And we started to see all these Muslims uh, who are in the military, who are in the police, who are, you know, now we see them as doctors. What it did is it invited Muslims to come out and say, 
we're, we're part of the same fabric you are. We believe in the same constitution and the same free. You know why our families came to this country? Because we believed in it. We didn't come here to destroy it. We didn't come here to wreck your country. We came here to share in your country. And now our children are here and we grow up in it. So it's actually, I think, created an environment where people who didn't know that they were around Muslims, because Muslims like everybody else, they're your pharmacist, your accountant, your lawyer, your doctor, your taxi driver, they're, they're in your life. And now you get to know that they're in your life and you get to know that they're kind of just like you. You know, I, I am not, I'm a huge fan of democracy. I'm a much bigger fan of pluralism. I'm a student of religion. My, my degree is in religion. And, and what I love about uh, this nation is that on the books, at least, this nation's about you are who you are. You and I don't have to uh, subscribe to the same religion or, or political beliefs or any other beliefs. But we can coexist and we can be friends and we can be part of this politic. And I actually think that what the last three and a half years has done for Muslim Americans is remind everybody, we're all part of this thing together. We're in it. And it is, I have met more Muslims in the military. I've met more Muslims in mainstream life. I've met more Muslims who are frontline workers uh, in this pandemic because, because Donald Trump has almost invited us all to say in normal conversation, hey, I'm a Muslim. You weren't scared of me 20 minutes ago. Are you scared of me now? Um, so I actually think the future for Muslims in this country is good. It's strong. And this is another one of those things. A little time will have to go by. But I will thank Donald Trump one day for making this a thing. Because it wasn't a thing before. So a lot of people didn't know who the Muslims were in their life. And now we get to know them, embrace them, and say, hey, I kind of like that. So with that in mind, though, we're, I think, 86 days uh, from the some, somewhere around there from the election when we're recording this. And I'm curious, um, is this the most consequential election of our lifetime? I mean, you're a student of history, of religion, of of the media. You've seen a lot of different things happen um, over the course of your your storied career. I'm just curious, is this the one that we need to, I mean, of course we need to pay attention to every election. They're all so important, but this one seems weightier than others. Yeah. Yeah, interesting in the in the wake of the fact that Barack Obama was elected president, right? You would have thought that was the most consequential thing, but that that showed us the best of us. Um, I think in our lifetime, certainly, uh, there were elections in the '60s that were uh, very very important, and we were we were bifurcated as a country, and we were polarized. Uh, but I think for most people, this one is going to be the most important election of their lifetime, unless you're really really old. Um, because it is about who we are. It is, it is not about who you vote for. It's not about the office. It's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's really about directionally who we are. Uh, we have strayed from that path. Uh, we were uh, the example for the world. There were many times when we may, maybe shouldn't have been or didn't earn that badge. Um, as I said today on my show, there are many times America's got it really wrong. Uh, with slavery, with not extending the franchise to women, in in uh, in the delay in imposing uh, uh, fair civil rights, but boy, when we get it right, we can get it really, really, really right, and that's the leadership that America needs to show. And this could be our opportunity to tell the world. Okay, sorry, sorry about the last few years. We're going to reestablish ourselves in terms of leadership on the world stage, in terms of climate, in terms of human rights, um, you know, in, in, in terms of a global order that makes sense. We have to actually reimpose our, ourselves. And there, were, there are things we're going to do wrong uh, when we do it, but we have to at least say, hey, we have a responsibility to be 
somewhere around the, at the front of the line helping create policy around the world. And this will help us do that. That's the decision we're making. Are we going to be an island unto ourselves or are we going to resume our leadership role in the world? You know, part of me, uh, you know, recognizes that, you know, so many of us are thinking so individualistically right now um, with the pandemic. We're all socially distanced. We're not interacting. But, but I think, as you said, we've missed our global place, our position, whatever you want to call it. And it's it, it not, I'm not even talking economic. I'm talking just basic leadership and being yep. the country that we have been all, you know, the more perfect union that we're striving for. Yeah. Right. And, and I think the other thing that's been frustrating for me in all of this, and maybe you can talk about this for a second, is, you know, I, I have been incredibly frustrated by people telling me that I don't love this country or I'm not patriotic because I have progressive values. Uh, for, for so long, progressives have been really quiet. Um, you know, we've been kind of in the background and not, you know, and now that we're talking, people are like, wait, you're not, you're, you're, you're so un-American and stuff like that. I personally love this country. I want a more perfect union. I just see it in more progressive policy. And especially in the South, we're seeing a, a kind of recoil against the, the progressive values. Um, you know, here in North Carolina, we have an amazing governor, uh, Roy Cooper, yep. uh, who has been quite literally sometimes at the front lines of, of dealing with the president during this pandemic. And yet he is being um, vilified simply by saying, you know what, we need to listen to science. So it's all these things that make me wonder, you know, is our priority patriotism or is our priority the love of, of the possibility of this nation? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I, I think, you know, uh, I think patriotism, I, I, it's not that I don't like it, but but I, I you have to, you, you sometimes walk up a, against the edge of nationalism and and some of the things we've seen, the ugliest parts that we've seen in the world, and some of them in America, of nativism, right? And, and we just need to separate that. I, I, I'm fine with the word patriotism, but we need to remember it's not this, it's this. It's, it's, it's love of your country and love of the possibility of what your country can be, right? We've never really been that, that perfect union, but that's okay. I, I'm not as I'm not in shape the way I'd like to be, but I still think about it. I don't decide we're never going to get there. We're going to get there. And the things that this country stands for and the things that it uh, has striven for are really noble. I travel around the country. Not everybody thinks the, the U.S., even in our better times, had it all right. But they, they believed that we believed that right looks like something, that there is this thing called fairness. There is this thing called equity. And that is what this country was founded on. We, we, we've strayed from it many times. In fact, at the beginning of this country, we didn't even have that right. You know, uh, blacks couldn't vote. Women, it was a distant idea that women might vote property. People who didn't own property couldn't vote. But we had an idea of what perfect could look like one day. And we knew that it would be people smarter than us in generations to come. I still have that idea. I still think there's no reason why you and I will get this right in our lifetimes. But shouldn't the ship be in the right direction? That, to me, is faith in your country. The idea that we're not perfect yet, but we can get there. And we have demonstrated, by the way, our ability to get there. The election of Barack Obama did not make us a post-racial society, but it said, wow, look at that. America can do that. Look at uh, what's we possible. Can, we, yeah. on, we have possibility. So dream about possibility. That, to me, is very patriotic. So, you know, I, I think the other thing that we have to consider with all this, you know, is, is, is I want to have faith, too, that, that it can happen in our lifetime. It may not. You know, and I had this experience, Ali, when I was uh, with the with the statues. I never thought that we'd see Monument Avenue yeah. in any way come down in Richmond. I never thought that we'd be having this national kind of wave of statues coming down that, that I've really been active in. But I think 
it shows the potential, right? Like the, you know, certainly there are plenty other monuments to the Confederacy, uh, you know, monuments through our healthcare system and how we treat people of color and, and school systems and prison systems. Yes. But yeah. this particular moment was one that I didn't know, think I'd see. And, and that's been a great feeling and, and open new possibility as well. And I, when I was out in the streets of Minneapolis and Chicago and New York covering these protests, what I saw there was people who in many cases had felt, uh, and these were young, there were all ages and they were white and black, but people who hadn't really felt fully engaged in the political system, sometimes because they had felt that they were deliberately kept out of it by the process and others who just, you know, they, a lot of young people don't feel that engaged by it. And this engaged them and they realized, wow, you know what? We, when we come together, can affect change. And to the extent that uh, when John Lewis died, and we were all watching those pictures of the, the, the march uh, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the, and the march on Washington, looked exactly the same. It was exactly the same thing. It was people coming together. Some of them were angry. Some of them were joyful. Some of them were linking arms. Some of them didn't look like they were entirely sure why they were there, but they knew they were part of something. And that is how change happens. It's how change happened in the 60s. It is how change will happen today. Will we get all the way there? Maybe not, but we will get somewhere. You're right. Who thought those monuments were to come down? What a symbol, right? These are stone statues, monuments in the middle of parks and intersections that that people defined uh, those those geographies by. So we are realizing that things can change and it is up to us to actually change them. And that to me, being out in the streets and seeing people embrace that was amazing. It, it didn't even matter what the particular rally was about. You know, somebody, the, the federal government talks about how the rallies in Portland have, you know, they're not about George Floyd and they're not about police brutality. Right, they're actually about something bigger. And that's okay, and I think George Floyd would be fine with that. The idea that we are actually retaking our democracy and saying, this is how the future of it is going to look. So we may not get there. I mean, hopefully we'll get there. It may not be in our lifetimes, but we are certainly going to be able to point in the right direction. When I see John Lewis writing a letter the day he died uh, with, with Kevin McCarthy talking about the education system, I think to myself, you know what? He worked every day from his 20s till the day he died. We can do the same thing. Well, and you know, the thing with the, that was astounding with John Lewis is even in death, he could bring George Bush and Barack Obama, to, you know, and we may see that as, 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 gosh, I'd take George Bush sometimes any day over what's happening right now. And I know that sounds bad, but, you know, I just, there, the, John Lewis offered the best of this nation, as, as you said, and I think he also brought us together, which is what we desperately need. We need that. We need to get past this. And I think of him and I think of Martin Luther King, and I think of, you know, my family's from South Africa. They were anti-apartheid fighters. And I think of Nelson Mandela. I remember the day he walked out of jail uh, and there was a receiving line and the ambassador from the uh, United Kingdom was there and he, he shook their hand and said, please give my regards to Mrs. Thatcher. Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were a lot of the reason why Nelson Mandela was in jail for as long as he was. I'm not sure I would in my entire life be able to overcome some of these things that these people have overcome. John Lewis was cracked in the skull. They broke his skull. Um, and, and yet, and he kept going to jail and he kept on fighting. And every time I met him, the man was, was just noble and, and had greatness in him. That's what leads us because most of us are weaker than that. Most of us will harbor anger and resentment for a long time and, and, and justifiably so. But these few people who can say, I'm bigger than that. I'm bigger than your batons and your jails and all of that stuff, which I think it's a combination of, of faith and, and resolve uh, that comes together in some people. 
What a great lesson. I, 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 I say this about very few people. I have never been more happy than when I talk about John Lewis's death because he reminds me of the best of us. He reminds me about what we can do. When, I, when somebody says John Lewis on my show in the last couple of weeks, I just instantly smile because I think that's, that's the hope of America, right? This guy protested, arrested, beaten, went on to be a member of Congress and a great civil rights, rights leader who took a picture in Black Lives Plaza uh, in Washington, D.C., who had a Zoom meeting uh, with Barack Obama and other young leaders to talk about how to do it. And his message is the same message it was in 1963. Go vote, because all of this stuff doesn't count. We've got the vote. We've got to use the vote. Well, and it's, it's amazing how it's changed because as he was crossing over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, there were police escorts and police saluting. And, and, amazing. and, it, and that to me, you know, being beaten by the state troopers and, and the state police, and then all of a sudden, you know, that, that is possibility. And that shows us that we've got a lot of work to do and we've come a long way and we do have to vote. Um, you know, uh, one of the questions that I have for you is you really do have a front row seat to this you get to see this every day in day out when you're on your show, when you're reporting, when you're doing behind the scenes work, you know, whatever. How do you care for yourself? Well, thank you for asking that. I appreciate that. And I, I, I appreciate that. I get a number, lot of tweets from people saying that, you know, we take care of yourself while you rest. And I, you know, I, I've, I've two responses to that. I, I will rest one day. Um, but I report on the people who don't rest. Right? I'm out there talking about the first responders, the protesters. Um, so I'll, I'll rest when they can rest. And there are things that will happen that will allow them to rest, and then I will too. But I live a very comfortable life, um, and I'm safe, and I have um, influence in society, and I have voice that a lot of people don't have. And so if, you, if you're going to talk for the voiceless, then that's a full-time job. And I've signed up for that. So I'm going to do that. You know, one of the criticisms that I have uh, heard a lot of during the social justice movement these days is the idea that it's always easy to say the right thing, to write the right words, to even donate to the right cause and show up at the right march. Um, what happens when you go home? What happens when you don't have a threat of being pulled over by a police officer and killed because of some misunderstanding or because of some fear that that police officer has of you? What happens when it doesn't compromise your work or your salary? What happens when you don't have to be forced out to work in a pandemic? That's when you have to prove uh, whether your, your back is really in it. And, and this is a moment in which in 2020, 2040 or 2050, they will remember 2020. That's the year our children and our grandchildren will say, what were you doing then? And I would like to have a good full answer for them. So right now I'm filling my book with the stuff that I will tell them. And I say this to everybody, it's different for everybody. Everybody's role in this world is different. Um, and, and some of it might be just caring for the closest person to you and keeping them safe, but don't have no answer. When they say, what did you do in 2020? Don't be silent. That's not going to be an option. So my voice comes from what I do. I get to use that voice on television uh, every single day. And until they take that mic away from me, I'm going to use it. Well, I hope they never take the mic away from you. You've always, you're always so incredibly uh, astute on what's going on. And you, you, you always seem to have a perspective that's valued. So I will ask you this, though, on that valued perspective. We ask everybody who comes on Beloved Journal uh, what they're watching on their streaming services right now. Um, and I don't think you can say your show. Um, I don't think that's fair to, you know, uh, to everybody. What are you watching in your, in your very little spare time that you have? 
so what I, I, I do two things, right? When I, to consume information, I consume the, the things that I have to because I'm reading about my guests. I tend to read uh, the books that my guests have written. Uh, and I tend to read a lot of things that are of the moment. Uh, or or in this, when I say of the moment, in this moment, reading a lot of things about uh, the civil rights movement, about slavery, about Jim Crow, about those things that educate us. The other side of my life is mindless novels that you get at the airport or uh, TV shows that are um, as mainstream as they get uh, to switch my mind off. So I have no middle, I have no middle ground. I'm either reading the stuff because I'm going to talk about it on my show, which I love doing. And I love the fact that I get to book people like you and um, some of the greatest uh, people of our time in terms of whether they're academics or they're activists. But the other side of me, uh, the way I switch off my brain is to watch something that takes no effort whatsoever. Oh, come uh, on. So, you have to tell us what it is. What are you watching? Uh, you shied away I, from that I, a little bit. I'm a, I'm a series, be, I'm an entire season behind on Homeland, so I'm still catching okay. up on that. I watched the Chicago series, the uh, PD, uh, Fire, and Med, so I'm in the midst of that. Um, you know, a lot of formulaic stuff where you kind of know how it's going to play out. I love it, uh, but uh, but that's what I do when I'm. Okay. You know, Chicago, well, probably the Chicago series is probably the thing I watch the most. Well, thank you for answering. I was going to have to press you on that. And I don't, I don't want to press you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for spending this time with us and for talking to us. Um, I know where can people find you besides MSNBC? Well, so I, I'm on there all the time. Uh, uh, my show, Velshi, is uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings, 8 to 10 a.m. But uh, certainly for the next month or so, I will be on every single night on primetime. This you know, coming week, I'll be doing All In for Chris Hayes. Uh, I do Lawrence O'Donnell's show. I do Rachel's show. Uh, you know, ever since my great friend Joy Reid was promoted into having her own primetime show every fabulous, night. Fabulous, fabulous news. Fantastic for her, and I love her, but it's made more work for me because she was the other person who used to back up uh, in primetime. So um, I'm on a lot and uh, come around Labor Day I'm going to start hitting the streets again I'm going to get out there and make sure that I have these conversations with average Americans so you might actually see me in your town uh, between now and election day well we also hope that uh, you will you know you, you know who knows you might get the anchor the big you know the big the big chair you have a big chair now but you know I do might... I got a, got a lot I'm, I'm grateful for what I have I have we, we're grateful one thing for I you. have is a great deal of variety there are very few people um, who, who get to do as many different things as I do. And my, my employers are really cool about the fact that, you know, they'll send me to a hurricane or they'll send me to the protests or they'll, you know, I, I can do a lot. And in this moment, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, um, doing is really important, but just being able to bear witness, which is uh, central to your profession and mine uh, is a real privilege. I, I think we've got a, a lot in common and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Ali Velshi, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal. Thank you for having me. Beloved Journal is produced by Stephanie Lee and hosted by Rob Lee. Our theme music is by Mipso, the best band in the world. Connect with us on belovedjournal.com, and if you like what you heard, tell someone about it.